So we are in the middle of, and when I say middle of, I mean second week of, this series that we're launching into called What I Believe. We're going to be in the Bible every week, so if you've got one, bring it. If not, we've got them right back here. You're welcome to uh, grab them and use them. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we want you to keep that one. That one is for you. Um, We can replace them, and we're happy to do so. If you know someone that needs one, um, take it with you. We're going to be in it every week, so you might as well bring it. Um, And so that's just what we're doing. But we're starting this new series called What I Believe. We're into week two. The idea is simply this. How do you address the question in your life when somebody asks you, what do you believe about, and that thing is somewhat spiritual? What do you, and how do you address the question when someone says, hey, Trev, what do you believe about God? I mean, most of us have an idea and understanding what we believe about God, but articulating that becomes a much more difficult process. What do you believe about these things in the Bible that like prayer or communion or baptism? And what do we believe about the basics of theology in the Christian life. So I started thinking, what if we, just, we rediscovered these things together? What if we opened the Bible and discovered what the Word of God had to say on these basic principles of the Christian life so that with confidence we might be able to say, well, I'm glad you asked, because this is what I believe about Jesus, about evangelism, about whatever. And so I've, picked, I've kind of chosen or, or, or looked at 14 things that I think work with our kind of understanding of basic Christian theology and our way of life. And last week we really started with the idea of what do we believe about the Bible? Because the reality is that most of us, well, we know that this is God's Word, but we really don't maybe know how to articulate why we believe it is that. And so we decided the best place to begin this entire series was on the Bible, because everything that we do is going to be, be from here. We're going to use this as our guiding source, as the Word of God. So we have to understand what we believe about God's very Word. So last week we came up with four principles. We talked about the idea that this is God's Word, and we looked at 2 Timothy and some other places. But this is God's Word. We talked about the fact that Paul talks a lot about the category of Scripture called graphe, which is a Greek word that means this holy kind of um, document. And we talked about the fact that that Paul said that the category of Scripture was breathed by God, or that Greek word theopneustos, which really just means breathed out by God. That it is more than just simply inspired, that the Word of God is God's very breath, breathed to life. We talked about the fact that if it is God's Word, then to disobey or disbelieve any word of it is actually to disobey or disbelieve God. We talked about that the Word of God has the utmost authority for all matters of faith and life and practice, and that it is totally sufficient. This becomes the backbone for everything in which we believe. It causes us to seek God, to gain understanding from the Holy Spirit, and it enlightens all that we know about life. It challenges us and equips us. It doesn't have every single little answer, but it pushes us to seek the Holy Spirit and to see what God has to say for us. So today I thought what we'd kind of explore, we're going to take three really important Christian doctrines. And the word doctrine really just means idea or thought or kind of principle. We're going to take three really important ones and we're going to kind of cram them together. Because what we believe about these three foundational things is actually incredibly important to how we understand our entirety of Christianity. And those three three things are this. What do we believe about sin? What do we believe about grace? And what do we believe about redemption? 
Now, most of us will say, well, I kind of know. I mean, sin's bad things. Grace is the fact that God loves us anyway. And redemption is that idea that, that maybe he's given us something new. Which is all very true. But how do we articulate that from a Bible standpoint? And what does it mean to me? We're going to dive into the book of Ephesians today, and I'm going to actually read our text before we dive into some things, because I want it to be kind of percolating in the back of your mind. But if you've got your Bible, it's open to Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to be our starting place for where we dive into these categories of sin, grace, and redemption. So grab your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, right there in the um, New Testament, towards about, I don't know, halfway through there, Galatians, Ephesians... Right, right there. Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company, or Go Eat, whatever, you know, however you remember that. Ephesians chapter uh, 2. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you, God, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you, Father, that it penetrates our hearts. And you tell us, God, that it is, it is holy and it is worthy and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So God, make your word come alive in our hearts this morning. Take just a second right where you are and just ask God to speak to you this morning. Just ask God to speak to your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you, and just ask that God might move in their life and in their heart. Father God, we pray that you would make your word, um, that you would make it capture our hearts, and that you would enlighten us and open our eyes to what you're going to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read this. We're going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together because I want it kind of percolating in the back of your mind as we work through a few things this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and 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 the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. In order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed in the kingdom, no, excuse me, expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want you to just kind of let that be out there. Okay, we're going to go back to it and visit on it in just a second. Okay, so I want you to say this word with me. We're going to say the word sin, okay? And I want you to say it. I'm going to count to three, and I want everybody in here to say the word sin, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Say it again. We might as well say it because we never talk about it. 
It is a wildly unpopular subject. You never see that marquee that says, Sermon today, sin and the sinful sinner. It's like such a buzzkill. It's like, wah, wah. You know, nobody wants to talk about it. We all know that it somewhat exists. But we've got to address it. And I'm going to make a bold statement. And here's this statement. The most important understanding in all of Scripture is the understanding of sin. Now, I know you're going, yeah, but what about Jesus? But hear me, the most important understanding in all of Scripture is the understanding of sin. If we don't have an understanding of sin, we can't understand the nature of God, the person of Jesus Christ, our fellow man, how we see the world and how we're called to live. If we don't understand the nature and doctrine of sin, then we really can't even address the rest of our Christian lives or the rest of Christianity or the Bible, or God's redemptive plan in history, or why Jesus even came. The the understanding of sin is vitally important. So we're going to glance at our text this morning to kind of set this up, because we've got to understand it before we can even move forward to what we believe about it and how that changes who we believe we are in Jesus Christ. So what really is sin? I mean, you know, we've all heard the word. It's a very kind of Bible-ish word, we've all heard it. But really sin is this, it's anything that misses God's mark of perfection on our lives. So it's anything in our attitude, our actions, or our nature that misses the perfection of God. God is perfect and holy, and anything that is contrary to that perfect and holiness is by its nature sin. So the simple definition of sin is this, anything in our nature, our attitudes, or our behavior that misses God's mark of perfection. Now, our English word sin is really a term about archery. It was actually derived many, many years ago as an archery term. That's how we get the English word um, sin. It was really meant to miss the mark. If you missed the center mark in an archery tournament, it was called a sin. Really, it just means to miss the mark. So that's why sin is anything that misses the mark of perfection of God. Any nature or behavior or attitude that misses God's mark of perfection. Now, it's a pretty broad category, but basically it means anything and everything we are is steeped in sin. Now, there's two kind of principles we're going to look at in our text this morning when it comes to sin. Let's look at those first three verses again together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. Two big principles we have to understand when we talk about sin. The first one comes out of verse 3, and it's that everybody has it. This is supported all through Scripture. Romans, 1 John, there's all kinds of places where it talks about the fact that every single person has sin. We've got to understand that when we talk about sin, we are all utterly and hopelessly sinful. Now, if you're sitting out here today and you're going, well, I'm not really, you're going to need to get over that pretty quick because the reality is that it's true. If sin is anything in our actions, nature, and behavior that misses God's mark of perfection, we sin when we walked in these doors. We sin in the way that we think. We sin when we woke up. David in the psalm says that surely I was sinful at birth. It's in our very nature. 
our attitudes, the way that we think, the mindset that we have, the way that we behave, it's not perfect. And even if we think it's close to perfect, even if we think we're close to perfect, it's an earthly standard of perfect. It's not a holy perfection of God's standard of perfect. Everybody has it. Paul puts it this way. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Everybody has it. If you think you don't, First John says this. It says, anyone who claims to not have sin makes him, God, out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. So if we're sitting here saying, I don't have sin, the Bible tells us that we make God out to be a liar. So we probably all start by saying, I've got it. I know it. I'm sinful. I mean, my very nature and character is sinful. The second principle we see in there is this. Look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Because of it, you and I are dead. Now Paul's talking in the simple way, he's talking about a spiritual death. He's talking about a a life here on earth that is spiritually vacant and bankrupt and a no promise of an eternal life, but eternal separation from God. Death. You were dead in your sin. Hopeless. Utterly hopeless, period. Everybody's got it, and you are dead because of it. You see why nobody likes to preach on this stuff? What if that was the end? Done. All right, see you all next week. The reality is is that nobody wants to talk about sin because it's painful. Because the truth is we've got a huge problem. We've got a huge problem in our life, and that's that every one of us is steeped in our attitude, in our very nature, in the way that we act, to live in opposition to God. And that because of that nature, we're dead. Dead. See, the doctrine of sin is this, that we all have got it. Penetrates all of our lives. And we're hopeless because of it. But of course, that's never where God leaves the story, right? I mean, God never leaves the story in hopelessness. God always leaves the story with some amount of hope. But before we even understand grace and redemption and Christian life and Jesus, we have to understand that we are without hope, without cause, utterly lost and sinful in our very nature. That's where it is. That's where we all begin. Whether we want to believe it or not, it's true. But with God, there's never an ending of hopelessness. My favorite, one of my favorite verses or little pieces of scripture is in verse 4, right out of Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this, but because of his great love for us. I mean, is there any greater line in all of scripture that here we are utterly hopeless, dead because of our sin. Everybody's got it. Verse four says, but because of his great love for us. You want to talk about a transitional verse. You want to talk about something that shifts from death to life, that shifts from hopeless to hopeful, but God loves us. See, while we're lost and utterly hopeless, we come across this idea of, but God loves us. This is the beginning of grace. Grace begins with those words, but because of God's great love. Grace, by definition, is this, God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. 
Grace is God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. What that means is that we don't deserve his favor. We didn't do anything to earn his love. We were sinful and utterly lost and hopeless. But because of God's great love, we have his undeserved favor and his unmerited love. A couple of principles we see in this text when it talks about the idea of grace. First one, of course, is in verse 4. But because of his great love for us. See, the first principle about grace is that it's an expression of God's extravagant love. Grace is first and foremost an expression of God's extravagant love. What it means is that God is so full of love, so full of his desire for you to know him, that it pours out to rescue our lives. That God's extravagant love goes to the end of all things that we can think, which is sending his own son to give us life. Grace begins because God is absolutely in love with you. Now, if you're anything like me, man, some of that's hard to believe because I know me. I know what I think. I know my attitude. I know what I do. But grace is the part of us that in spite of all those things, God says, I'm desperately in love with you. See, grace begins as an expression of God's extravagant love. He didn't have to. It wasn't out of obligation. It's not out of necessity. It's out of love. And our human minds have a hard time wrestling with this because it doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense that this is how God would respond to us. The very creation that he made that would later crucify his son, that would betray him, break harmony with him, and live in total opposition to God. That God is extravagantly in love with. See, grace begins with an expression of God's love. Look at verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The second principle about grace that we have to understand is this. You didn't and will never do anything to deserve it. No amount of showing up at church, reading your Bible, going to Bible study, whatever you do, helping old ladies cross the street, whatever it is, will ever be deserving enough of God's grace. And sadly enough, our churches are packed with people who are just trying to do enough so that when they die, they're getting some spiritual credits, maybe, that God can't overlook. Now, I know I haven't always done things really well, but God, you know, I showed up at church every week and I did some good things, and so you kind of got to let me in. We're trying to build up credits in a spiritual bank account. The problem is, the reality is that every one of us is spiritually bankrupt. We don't deserve anything, and we can't do anything to earn it. I was sharing, uh, I was preaching and teaching at this event. There's a bunch of kids there, and one of the kids came down, and we were talking about grace. And I asked him, I said, well, what would you do if you were to die and go to heaven, and you were stand before God, and, and God were to say, why should I let you in? You know, the response, of course, we're looking for is because I trust in Jesus. And the kid goes, well, I'd look at God, and I'd say, well, you know, God, I've lived a pretty good life, and what I can offer you are my services. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of us approach our spiritual lives. You know, hey, God, I'm, I'm an accountant, and, you know, when I get there, if you need some help keeping track of the stuff, I mean, I can work an adding machine, you know. Um, I've got some services I can offer you. Um, my best for you. I mean, so what do we do? We show up at church, and we use our gifting sometimes as a way of getting accounts with God. God, I'm going to get some spiritual deposits. 
The reality is that we can show up at church every day of our life from now until the end of time and never know Jesus Christ. See, grace is God's undeserved and unmerited love. And it begins with an extravagant expression of that love. And you can't do anything to deserve it or earn it. So part of us has to start with sin and grace and understand this. I'm a mess. My life is a disaster. I admit that. Even on the outside when things look good, I recognize that my thought process is terrible. I recognize that I am one step away from any number of things. And the fact that you love me anyway, God, is mind-boggling. I couldn't do anything to deserve it. Because as soon as I do one thing right, I do 75 things wrong. And even the thing I do right, I do because I want to do it, which makes it wrong. And so I'm wrong. I get it. We just need to rest there. Sin is who we are. Grace is who God is. So what is the word redemption? Well, the word redemption really comes from the word redeem, which means to buy back, to purchase, or in a spiritual sense, it means to deliver. To buy back, to purchase, or to deliver. So how does redemption work with sin and grace? Well, redemption is that piece of our theology that says that God sent his son Jesus to buy us back, to become sin so that in him, as Corinthians talks about, we might become the righteousness of God. We are delivered from death to life. You see that, the way Paul talks about it? You were once dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You were dead. But redemption is that part of God who purchases your life through the blood of Jesus Christ. A couple of key principles about redemption I want us to jump on. Let's look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Redemption in this concept is really two things. One, you've got to understand that you are God's workmanship. Do you know that that Greek word, workmanship, is also used to connotate works of art? Have you ever thought about this? That your very life is God's workmanship crafted? That you are His work of art? Psalm 139 says this, that God, I know you knit me together in my mother's womb. See, a lot of us look at our lives and we think, or maybe we've been told that we were an accident that we've blown it, that we were messed up, that we were nothing but a burden on our parents, that everything we touch seems to somehow get turned into disaster. The reality about redemption and grace is that God calls us His workmanship, that God calls us works of art. I know for a lot of us, we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and the last thing we see is something beautifully created. We see flaws, we see brokenness, We see things that we hate, things that we don't like. We see things that we pretend we're not. We've got walls built all around our lives. But the last thing most of us see is something beautifully handcrafted by the maker of the universe. But think about this verse. That you are God's workmanship, his work of art. See, redemption is that part of God that brings from death to life. That says even in the middle of your mess and garbage... You are my work of art, and I love you so extravagantly that I'd die for you. I know a lot of us are sitting in here saying, I don't feel very much like I'm worthy of dying for. And that's the incredibly extravagant part of God's love. 
See, redemption begins with an understanding that God calls us beautiful. He calls us a work of art. Even in our nasty, sinful nature, God brings us from death to life. The last thing I want you to hear about redemption is simply this. The last part of verse 10 says this. That you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. You know what that means? It means that God has a plan for your life. It means that you're not in a void. God hadn't forgot about you. That God created you as a work of art and has a plan for your life. Now, believe it or not, that plan is, is not what you're thinking. It's not sitting out there going, ooh, God's plan for me to be a lawyer and uh, God's plan for me to be an architect or a doctor. And that certainly maybe makes up part of your plan. But really what Paul's talking about is he's talking about that God has a plan, good works, which he created for you to do. Those terms, good works, really just means a life of righteousness, that God created you for something more than to take up space, to simply exist. To work and work and work to save enough money so that when you retire, you're not in panic. That's not living, that's existing. God created you to do good things, to live a life that reflects Him. And this is the best picture of redemption I can ever find in the Bible. That God takes us who are utterly sinful and dirty and allows us to reflect His grace to the world. You want a picture of redemption? The fact that God allows me to even stand up here and tell you about how good he is is a picture of redemption. I'm as unqualified as anybody to talk about God's goodness. See, the reality is that God wants to use us to reflect his grace. Do you know how remarkable that is? That we become God's works of art reflecting his love to the world. That means that you're not a lost cause. That means that you're not an accident. It means that wherever you are, wherever work environment, home environment, life environment, you become a living reflection of the grace of Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed, bought back, delivered. Paul talks about it as an old way of life. Death brought to life. To me, there is no more important understanding of this than to begin with the idea that you deserve nothing and I deserve nothing. But that God in His extravagant love redeems us and allows us to gather here and say God is good. Now I know we walked in these doors with all kinds of things. All kinds of struggles, hurts, pains, issues and things. Some of them seem maybe surface, some of them are deep. Some of them we wear on our out, the outside of our clothing, and some of them are hidden deep within our heart. But the reality is, is that nothing and none of those are out of the reach or the grasp of God. This morning, what we need to understand as we close our time together in worship is this. I'm hopeless, yet God loves me. I'm hopeless, yet God loves me. And he's given me.